Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us here this evening to study your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit be with us as we break the bread of life, that we may have a better understanding of the investigative judgment, the sanctuary message, and the mystery of God that we're going to study tonight, that we can see your working and your will for each and every one of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight's topic, what we're going to cover, is called the mystery of God. Now, how do you know that the judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7 has commenced? I mean, how do we know that it is not sometime in the future that's, that some man comes to the Ancient of Days, that the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days? I mean, how do we know this? Good evening. So what did Jesus do when he went to heaven? What I'd like to do before we really get into the mystery of God is I'd like to, for you to turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It's going to be Luke chapter 19. We're going to be reading, begin reading in verse 11. And it says, And they heard these things he had added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. What does verse 12 say? He said, therefore. All right. Let's pause there for a moment. Jesus said, no, this is not the case because disciples thought that the kingdom of God was coming. So the Bible says he said, therefore. Okay. Because he wanted to help them understand the kingdom of God was not going to immediately appear, okay? But then when he said, therefore, what does therefore mean? What's it so? What's it, What's it there for? All right. Or better, a better way of putting it, it, meaning to coming to a conclusion or for this reason. So when you come across the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is the reason this is there for? Okay. And this is exactly what Jesus was trying to illustrate. For this reason, he tells him another parable. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself, what? A kingdom. Okay, and what else? And to return. Good evening. He went to receive, went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then the return. Keep that tucked behind your ear because we're going we're gonna to talk about this a little bit more. Who's the nobleman? Jesus. Jesus. Where does he go? Heaven. Goes to heaven, a far country. Right? Now you need to keep this clear in your heads because this is very important for you to understand exactly what is taking place in the most holy place right now. Good evening, guys. Okay? You need this to get this clear. And whatever Jesus is doing now, he's in a far country, and before he comes back, he's going to receive a kingdom, and then he's going to return. Do you see that from this, do you see that from this parable? You following me? Jesus is going into a far country, he's going to receive a kingdom, and then he's going to return. Okay? So the parable of the wedding. Some language that draws on a parable. Some of the language that we're going to see here draws on the parable of Matthew 25. Jesus says that I want your, in, in the parable, waist to be girded, lamps burning, and while you're waiting for your master to return from the wedding. So what does that sound like? 
parable of the ten virgins, right? So the master has gone away and will return from a wedding. So we have the fact that he is returning and receiving a kingdom first, and then he's going to return to the wedding. And we know that we're talking about Jesus here. So who is Jesus getting married to? Who is Jesus getting married to? Let's go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, we're going to be reading in verse 9 and 10. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven veils full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee, what? The bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me that great city for the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. Who's the bride? Jerusalem. So the master goes away to a far country to receive a kingdom and comes back from the wedding. We know that the lamb is Jesus and the bride is the kingdom. So this is a prophetic picture that is being painted here. Jesus is not getting married to a city but the significance of the kingdom is that in order for a king to have a kingdom, there must be subjects in it. What do you say? All right, so the idea of the marriage is that it, in, it is inclusive of making up the subjects in that kingdom. So the idea of the marriage is that it is inclusive to making up the kingdom, the subjects of that kingdom. You got that? And these things are going to, to help us to understand exactly what's taking place in Daniel chapter 7 when the judgment is set and the books are opened. All right, very, very important for us to understand. So now we get this, this scene that's going on in heaven. We're going to take a look at this scene in Daniel chapter 7. It's going to be in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, we're going to be reading in verse 9. says, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. And who is the Ancient of Days? God the Father, right? Did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. Let's go on. Verse 10, it says, And a fiery stream issued, and came forth from before him. Thousands and thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him, the judgment was set, and the books were opened. Let's jump over to verse 13. It says, And I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And who are the clouds of heaven? The angels. The clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And in verse 14 it says, And there was given him dominion and glory and what? A kingdom. Where did he receive the kingdom? And where is he receiving the kingdom, I should say? In heaven. Right? That all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that, that which shall not be destroyed. So in this scene, how do we know that it's taking place before Jesus comes? 
that's taking place. And if we parallel with what we just looked at, we can see that it makes it very plain that whatever is taking place in Daniel 7 is taking place before Jesus returns because he is returning from receiving a kingdom and returning from the wedding. You follow me? All right. Now, what is the symbol of the kingdom? Now, the bride does not just use the... The Bible doesn't just use this symbolism of a kingdom and wedding. We can see that they're very important. And we're going to go to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. As a matter of fact, does everybody remember what Matthew chapter 25 is about? (laughs) All right. In Matthew chapter 24, what, what was Jesus doing? He illustrates the signs of his second coming, right? And then what does he do? He right away, he starts breaking down and telling parables about what needs to be done in order for us to be ready for his soon coming. And he, and he talks about the parable. Then the first, first ten verses, it talks about the parable of the ten virgins, right? But now, when we look at this in Matthew 25, it, what's taking place there? Is it a wedding or is it the wedding banquet? It's the banquet, right? And the bridegroom would get... So these women go out waiting for the bridegroom to come. You you see that parallel, okay? You know, what's interesting in Eastern weddings, and I was researching this on the Internet, and you can look it up. It's pretty interesting. But the bridegroom would get married to the bride, and then later on they would return to the feast, all right? And then with the bridesmaid... So the wedding had already taken place, then the bridesmaids would come out in the evening to light the way to the feast, the banquet feast. Now, who is the ten virgins in this, this parable? Us. So then who's the bride? You, you see where this is going. Okay? So the bridesmaids were waiting for the bridegroom to return from the wedding to escort him to the banquet hall. The bride cannot be the church and the guests at the same time. And that's what I'm trying to make and illustrate here. Okay? So in this picture, the bride is the new Jerusalem. Now, some people, maybe there's somebody here saying, well, you know, that's not... You know, to see God... Let me rephrase myself. You have to see God does not marry a ghost town. You follow me? When What he's getting married to... The redeemed have a part to do in it. But we're talking about prophetic symbols here. Okay? While a nobleman is away, he is receiving a kingdom. That's what Luke chapter 19 says. When he's away, he's receiving a kingdom, and then he shall return. You follow me? Or did I lose you already? You guys had a big meal, didn't you? We'll touch on that a little bit more. We'll touch on that a little bit more, yeah. So while the nobleman was away receiving a kingdom and getting married, there was a judgment scene taking place. And they are all speaking of the same thing. All right? In the book Great Controversy, page 426, it says, The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14, the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days as presented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple, foretold by Malachi, 
are descriptions of what? The same event. And this is also represented by the coming of the bridegroom to the marriage, described by Christ in the parable of the ten virgins of Matthew 25. And in early writings, we find this quote. It says, I saw the Father rise from the throne and in a flaming chariot go into the holy city, the holy, I'm sorry, in the holy of holies within the veil, and sit down. Then Jesus rose up from the throne, and the, mo- and the most of those who were bowed down arose with him. Then he raised his right arm, and we heard his lovely voice saying, Wait here, I am going to my Father to what? Receive the kingdom. Keep your garments spotless, and in a little while I will return from the wedding and receive you to myself. You got that? Early writings, page 55. So now let's take and go to Revelation chapter 10. And let's take a look at the mystery of God. Is everybody clear on that before we continue? All right. Revelation chapter 10. Now earlier this morning we were talking about Revelation chapter 10 verse 10. Okay? But today we're going to, this evening we're going to look at Revelation chapter 10 verses 1 through 7. And it says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, What? Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea, and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which therein are, that there should be time no longer. And it goes on to say in verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery, the what? The mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now, keep your hand in Revelation. I want you to jump over to to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. And in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in what? Linen. Okay. And what else? Whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, and his face is the appearance of lightning. And his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and feet like into color of polished brass. And the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Who is he describing here? Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. John is speaking here, and he says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. 
And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white as wool and white and white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like on the fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in the strength. In all three of these verses, who is he describing? Jesus. The one who visited Daniel on the riverside was none other than Jesus Christ. The one who's standing with, with John with a little book open in his hand and, it, and his other hand raised up to heaven is none other than Jesus Christ. And we can see it very clearly that this is who this personage is. And the prophecies of Daniel chapter 10 through 12 are continuous. And it starts out with the view of the man clothed in linen, which gives us a description that matches that of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. So this little book that's sealed up, let's take a look at what this little book is all about. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12. We're going to be dancing around the Bible tonight, so, which is a good thing. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. Daniel chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 4. And it says, But thou, O Daniel, do what? Shut up the words and seal the book. Now this is very important for us to notice. You notice the wording, what's going on here. Okay, because we see in Daniel, in Revelation chapter 10, we see an angel standing with a little book that's open. Okay, but now in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, we see that the angel is telling him to seal up the words in this book. It's a sealed book. But then in, in Revelation chapter 10, the book is open. And that, the book that is open in Revelation chapter 10 is none other than the book of Daniel and the prophecies that are sealed therein. So sealed up till the time of the end, you'll notice, is what the angel says. Shut up the book even to the time of the end, because many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall, in, shall increase. Okay, so Dan, in Daniel chapter 12, the angel says, seal it up till the time of the end. What time of the end? 1798. Right, actually, 1844. Dealing with the 2300-day prophecy. This prophecy is the very foundation of our faith. It indicates who we are and what our message is. That's the 1260. Last days. We'll come. Well, I'll answer that later. I'll get on that. So John's, eye, John's eyes are drawn to the little book that is that is that is open, and that is significant to him. Then that message in Revelation chapter ten says the messenger in chapter ten says something that is very interesting that we need to read, because he says there shall be time no longer. All right. So often people try to squeeze time out of little places here and there. But yet we're told that prophetic time ended in 1844 when this angel in Revelation chapter 10 said there shall be time no more. Let us go back to Revelation chapter 10. 
Revelation chapter 10. And we're going to read in verse 6. So the angel standing there on the side of the river. He's got the little book in his hand and his hand up to heaven. And it says, And swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things therein, and the earth and the things that are therein, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now I want to make something very clear. That the end, to- end of the prophetic time was done at that point. You follow me? Okay? There shall be time no longer. And the longest and greatest time prophecy had come to its conclusion. You got that? Now do you see? Okay? And this is the announcement that was made. He goes on to say in, in verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God, should be finished. So what should be finished? The mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to the servants his prophets. Okay, so now let us take a look at the mystery of God. In the SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 7a, it says, The mighty angel who instructed John was no less a personage than Jesus Christ, setting his right foot on the sea and his left upon the dry land, shows the part which he is acting in the closing scenes of the great controversy with Satan. The mighty angel demands attention, and he cries with a loud voice. He is to show the power and authority of his voice to those who have united with Satan to oppose the truth. For an honest Christian that really wants to know the will of God, an honest Christian who wants to know the will of God in their life, we need to be asking, what is the will of God? Should we not? I mean, how many of us in our lives are actually saying, Lord, what is your will? And then when God reveals his will to us, we say, let thy will be done. Right? And do we have the courage to do it? In Daniel 8, let's go to Daniel 8, verse 13. Everybody following me so far? Daniel 8, verse 13. It says, Then I heard one saint speaking to another saint, and said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice? and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. This verse is paralleling what we are, we've just been looking at here. And in Daniel 8.13, we see one holy one speaking to another holy one. And how many holy ones do we see here? Or saints? Two. Okay. Does anybody have a center margin reference Bible? It's kind of something like this. Can you look in the center and tell me what it says there? about one of those holy ones? Go ahead, the number. Okay. The number of secrets or the wonderful numberer. So here we have a holy one. Okay, or a saint speaking to another, another saint or holy one. But that one of them's name 
is, is called Wonderful Numberer, or Numberer of Secrets. Okay, and the, the word actually comes from a Hebrew word called Palamai, which is the number of secrets or a wonderful number, number. So you have these two holy ones conversing. And when we read in Daniel chapter 8, 13, that one said unto the Palamai, the wonderful number, the one holy one says to the number of the secrets, how long shall the vision be? And we get the answer in verse 14, where he says, and he said unto me unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay, so one of the names of Jesus is what? Yes, sir. Palamai. Kadush. And the Strongs? Should be Palamai in Hebrew. Okay. All right. So one of the names of Jesus is what? Is it called the Wonderful Counselor? Prince of Peace? All right. And if there are any secrets, the Lord God must reveal it through his prophets, right? So Daniel does not ask a question here because he is so overwhelmed by the vision. So the one holy one or the one saint asked the other the, other the question that Daniel should have been asking. And for some reason, it is so important that these two holy ones, that Dan, to, for Daniel to get the answer, he is going to get in Daniel 8, 14. And it seems to me that the one holy one, okay, is prompted in Daniel eight thirteen to ask this question. So he asked the question to the wonder, wonderful number, number, but the wonderful number doesn't turn to Daniel with the answer, does he? Because it says that he answered the one that was asking him the question. All right? And if we look in verse 14, Daniel says, He said unto me, On the 2300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And here's the significance of this. The wonderful number is Jesus Christ himself. And the question was asked, and it was Jesus himself that said, that he could not leave the work to anyone but himself to reveal that the prophecy of the, of the 2300 days. And that to, ought to give us some weight and significance for you and I, that it was Jesus Christ that was giving this very prophecy. Okay? And it is Jesus that prompts the question, and it was important for Daniel to understand the answer, but even more so for you and for me today. And the same way we see in Daniel chapter 10, the man clothed in white linen which is just a representation of Jesus Christ himself, who comes and gives the prophecy and pronounces that this book needs to be sealed, it would make sense that it would be Jesus himself to come and proclaim the book unsealed. You follow me? And when it comes to the prophecy, it's very important to Jesus that we understand what is taking place here. So what is this mystery of God finished in the time of the end? In Revelation chapter 10, there is something very significant going on. He announces something called the mystery of God and that the mystery of God will be finished in the time of the end. Okay? So what is this mystery of God? Let's take and look at some verses here. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. 
We read, Wherefore I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So Paul said he is made a minister of God for the purpose of what? For the Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. I didn't give you the verse, did I? All right, well, that's good to stay on top of me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Sorry about that. Wherefore, I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Okay? To fulfill would also mean to fill full. Or in other words, every prophecy that God gave will meet its fulfillment. You got that? So you see, there were still, still things in Paul's time that haven't met their fulfillment yet. Okay? And it goes on to say in verse 26, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. Alright? So this mystery has been around for a long time. It's just that it hasn't been revealed yet. Alright? And in verse 27 we read, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So the purpose of preaching the mystery is to present every man and woman perfect in Christ Jesus. Verse 29 says, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Is there anything wrong with striving for a Christian life? Right? Is there anything wrong with striving for a Christian life? No. Okay. And it depends on how you are striving through it, for it, right? Okay. But look at how Paul strives in verse 29 again. He says, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working. To whose working? His working, Christ's working, which worketh in me mightily. And the Greek says, if you to translate, I strive according to his energy, which energizes me mightily. You get that? The energy the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And there's no striving you or I could ever do on our own. It has to be through the power of the indwelling Spirit that energizes us. And Paul wraps this up and, up and calls this the mystery of God. So when we look at the sanctuary, the first part of the sanctuary, the outer court, deals with what God has done for us on the earth, what Christ has done on the earth. On the earth. That's what the outer court is a representation of. But the holy place and the most holy place is dealing with what God has, is doing for us in heaven today, what Christ is doing for us today. This is the heavenly side and the earthly, I mean the earthly side and the heavenly side. And when, this morning when we were talking about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, all right, there was a question that was asked before class about what's taking place in the holy place? What, what is some of the symbolism that we can get out of this, out of this, this imagery here of the plan of salvation? And what God was illustrating is that these pieces of furniture, wood overlaid with gold, wood overlaid with gold, and then solid gold, there's something that's taking place. And he was trying to illustrate the transformation of our characters because when we come to Christ, he puts something on us, does he not? 
He puts on his righteousness, his character on us. But what he's doing, what he started in the outer court, okay, is adopting us into the family of God, but in the sanctuary he's making us like him, right, where he's working out his, his righteousness through us. And it's by looking at these pieces of furniture we see div- divinity overlaid with gold because Christ has placed his character upon us. And he's working that out through us until we become perfect in Christ. You follow me? All right? And this is what Paul is illustrating, the glory of God. What makes anything glorious? By the presence of God being there, right? So Paul wraps that up and calls it the mystery of God. Okay? So what is the mystery of God? Well, the Bible says in Revelation 10, there is a time coming when the mystery will be finished. And we're going to take a look at another text, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 19. He goes on to say, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So that Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery that Paul is speaking about here, is the gospel. Let's look at another one again. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy First Timothy 3, and verse 16, it reads, And without controversy great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on him, believed on in the word, and received up into glory. And I just want to deal with this first part here, and without controversy great is the mystery of godliness. God was what? manifest in the flesh. And the mystery of godliness is God manifest in the flesh. It is humanity becoming partakers of the divine nature. It is divinity and humanity combined, a union of the two. And Christ in you, the hope of glory, the new birth through the Spirit, that is the mystery of godliness. You follow me? Faith and Works, page 93 says, through Christ, restoration as well as reconciliation is provided for man. The gulf that was made by sin has been spanned by the cross of Calvary. You remember I showed you the illustration? When you lay out the cross in the front of the sanctuary and lay it out that the shadow that spreads across the sanctuary, Christ has spanned by the cross of Calvary. A full, complete ransom has been paid by Jesus by virtue of which the sinner is pardoned and the justice of the law is maintained. All who believe that Christ is the atoning sacrifice may come and receive pardon for their sins. For through the merit of Christ, communication has been opened between God and man. God can accept me as his child, and I can claim him and rejoice in him as my loving father. We must center our hopes of heaven upon Christ alone. 
Upon who alone? Why? Because he is our substitute and our surety. We have transgressed the law of God, and by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. But the best efforts that man in his own strength can make are valueless. What are they? Why? To meet the holy and just law that he has transgressed. But through faith in Christ, he may claim the righteousness of the Son of God as all-sufficient. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. There's nothing that you or I could do to save ourselves. Nothing. As a matter of fact, the Bible illustrates it even more plainly, that anything that you do that might have any virtue, that might have any value, is filthy rags. You follow me? On our best day, that's right. On our best day, we're still horrible. Okay? He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works is keeping the law. And keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. Man cannot be saved without obedience, but his work should not be of himself. Christ should work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. What is Christ doing in us? He's working out his will in us that it will bring good pleasure to him. And if a man could save himself by his own works, he might have something in himself in which to rejoice. But the effort that man makes in his, is in his own strength to obtain salvation is represented by the offering of Cain. All that man can do without Christ is polluted with selfishness and sin. But that which is wrought through faith is acceptable to God. And when we seek to gain heaven through the merits of Christ, the soul makes progress. Looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we may go on from strength to strength, from victory to victory, for through Christ the grace of God has worked out our complete salvation. Complete salvation. Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Be good if I went to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Remember we covered this this morning as well members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. What shall they be? But then what does Paul say in verse 32? This is a great mystery, but I speak it concerning Christ and the church. What is he illustrating here? He's illustrating this, this union of husband and wife as a representation of him and the church becoming one. And notice that the mystery is the two becoming one, and he is not speaking of husband and wife here. He is speaking of Christ and the church, divinity and humanity becoming one. And what is happening in the most holy place, the work of the investigative judgment, the work of Jesus is, of, that he is doing as our high priest is receiving a kingdom, getting married, and carrying out the investigative judgment in the union of divinity and humanity in us. He's unifying humanity, I mean divinity and humanity in us. 
All right, in Christ Object Lessons, it says, The parable of the wedding garment opens before us a lesson of the highest consequence. By the marriage is represented the union of humanity with divinity. The wedding garment represents the character which all, how many? All must possess who shall be accounted fit guests for the wedding. The parable of the wedding garment opens before us a lesson of highest consequences. Why? Because by the marriage is represented the union of humanity with divinity, and the wedding garment represents the character which all must possess who shall be acquainted fit guests for the, for the wedding. Christ took of himself humanity so that we could take on divinity and partake of the divine nature. That's in Second Peter 1, verse 4. Let's go there briefly. Chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding and great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In the book Desire of Ages, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me and hath everlasting life, though the beloved John, through the beloved John, who listened to these words, the Holy Spirit declared to the churches, this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he that hath the Son hath life. And Jesus said, I will raise him up on that last day. Christ became one flesh with us in order that we might become spirit with him. It is by virtue of this union that we are to, become, to come forth from the grave. That's Desire of Ages, page 388. And it goes on to say, not merely as manifestations of the power of Christ, but because through faith, his life has become ours. And those who see Christ in his true character and receive him into the heart have everlasting life. It is through the Spirit that Christ dwells in us. And the Spirit of God received into the heart by faith is the beginning of the life eternal. When is it the beginning of life eternal? When we receive Christ in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, if we do not have this union, there is nothing else in our Christian experience that will save us. You follow me? And just like Nicodemus, when Jesus spoke to him and told him that you must be born again, he was a church-going, probably church-going for years, right? He was a faithful tithe-payer. And for all intents and purposes, he was a faithful church member. And yet Jesus told him he must be born again. And to be born again, it means that we have to be a partaker of the divine nature. If we don't have the union, we will not be raised again. You follow me? And we will not be going to heaven. This mystery has to be finished in us. Jesus dwells in us. That is what Galatians 2.20 says. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I now live is not my life anymore, is it? It is the life that Jesus has given me. And we need to surrender self. We have to learn how to put away our will to the side. Then we need to follow God's will. Do you follow? 
what Paul is saying here? In order for us to have that experience with God, we need to die to self and let Christ live in us. In the Desire of Ages, page 389, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life through the beloved John. I think I quoted this one already. Some of these quotes got mixed up. Sorry about that. If the Spirit of God has not come into the heart, into your heart, we do not have eternal life, do we? Because how can we be saved if we're not connected to Christ? It is the union and the virtue of that union that saves us. And this union is what the Bible is using to represent the marriage. And this is what is taking place in the most holy place, in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus is uniting his divinity with humanity, with his people's humanity. And this is important for us to understand, folks, because this is the finishing of the mystery that has to take place before he returns. That Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are there any questions before we close with prayer? Let us bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for revealing your will for us and the mystery that you want to be finished in our that you want to have finished in our lives. And I pray, Father, that you'll help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but knowing that we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the author and finisher of our faith, who has promised that he'll complete the good work that he started in us. And, O Lord, I pray that you complete that work, that we may be ready when you come again in your clouds of glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.